Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Elizabeth Kingston was reading racy historical romance as a curious 11-year-old, so it's perhaps not surprising she's the successful author of two historical romance series, one set in the Regency, the other in 13th century Wales. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Elizabeth talks about keeping historical romance relevant for modern readers, her obsession with the Mitford sisters, and how she protects herself against creative burnout. But before we get to Elizabeth, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to everything we've discussed today as well as a means to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Elizabeth. Hello there, Elizabeth, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, look, I always start with a very predictable question, but it is one that I just love to have the answer to, and that is, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided that you must write fiction and or otherwise you would somehow be letting yourself down or not fulfilling your purpose on this earth? And if so, what was the catalyst for it? Well, there is actually, it's a, it's a great question because in my case, at least, there's actually a very definite answer. It's like, you know, once upon a time I was turning 40. Um, that's basically, <laughs> it kind of answers itself. Um, <laughs> You know, I wrote my first novel when I was 29 and I did it almost, um, I mean, honestly, I did it on a whim, almost as a joke. It'd been this longstanding joke between friends and I for years that, oh, someday I'm just going to write a romance novel. I know what they're like. They're, you know, make a little money. Um, And then I decided one day, yeah, sure, I'm going to do that. And within a few sentences, I just absolutely fell in love with writing, which was completely unexpected. Um, And it stopped being a joke almost immediately. Um, So I loved it. I finished that book. I started another one. And I I stopped for various reasons. Um, You know, I, I think back to it all the time. And there's just so many things that go into it. But Basically, I stopped and I abandoned that book. And, um, you know, it bothered me that I wasn't writing, but I decided, you know, there was no point in feeling bad about it and trying to guilt myself or force myself. So I let myself I essentially kind of quit and say, well, you know, that was fun, but that was it. Um, I did always think that the impulse would come back. I always just assumed, you know, oh, you know, my, I just need a break from it. Um, but one day I looked up and it had been 10 years. Um, and, you know, I, I think, like I said, I always thought the impulse would come back, but it didn't. And the creative part of me just kind of stayed suffocated. So like I said, I was turning 40 and you kind of, that's the age where you kind of look at what your life's about and what you want and what's the whole point of it all. All the midlife crisis is a cliche because it's so often true, right? Yeah. Um, so... I had this moment where I asked myself, you know, what do I really want? And um, 
when was I, when was I happiest? Right. When was, when did I feel most like myself? And the answer was, you know, I, I wanted to feel like a writer again, that very brief period of time when I identified myself as a writer and I was creating was absolutely the best I'd ever felt in my life. And, and so I wanted to be creating and I wanted to be imagining stories again. You know, I liked myself like that and I missed it. It was the most alive I'd ever felt really when I wrote. So it was a struggle to get back to it. That's a story in itself, but I managed it because, you know, I recognized that if I kept on as I was, you know, that's, I was an administrative assistant, a nice steady office drone kind of job that was really suffocating my creative side. And I knew that if I kept on just as that and not writing, that I would honestly be miserable for the rest of my life. And I'd get to the end of my life and I'd still be wishing that I'd gotten back to writing. So yeah, I guess, you know, the catalyst was, you know, misery in corporate America and a kind of midlife crisis. That's my origin story. That's wonderful. Now look, that first book that you wrote, was it a historical romance? It was. It's um, it's published now. It's called A Fallen Lady. Great. And did you try and get a publisher at that time? I did. So at the time, that was, I think, 2002, 2003. And I did. I queried agents um, and nobody was interested. Um, and it was really disheartening. And and I do think that was a, a that was a part of it. I realized, you know, that you had kind of had to toughen up and be really persistent and, and all this stuff and, um, you know, the way that the market was then. And I just, it, it, it was just a little overwhelming and it was too much. And I don't think I was ready at the time, but I did, I did try, nobody was interested. And, um, yeah. And that was, and like I said, I started on my second book, which is the book that turned into the King's man. Um, and I, I, um, which is the first published, uh, but the second that I wrote and I abandoned it, uh, a little ways in, it was very difficult to write, but it was also just really difficult to get the motivation up. Like I said, you know, here I was with this job and this life that was kind of suffocating the creative part of me while at the same time, the creative part of me was not being rewarded externally in any way it was being rejected. Um, so it was kind of a perfect storm for like, yeah, screw this, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now if we move on, you've published historical romances in two different periods, 13th century England, which is medieval, I guess, although medieval is a very long spanning period. It is 13th century England, Wales, and Regency mm-hmm. England. Now both of those mm-hmm. are some of the most popular periods of romance but I, I think that probably is not why you chose them. You chose them because they really interested you. Tell us about how you chose those periods and why you settled for historical romance in the first place. Um, well, I mean, in the first place, I, I chose to write historical because it's mostly what I read. So I started reading romance w- way too early. Um, I say that, you know, like now as an adult at the time, it felt, re- but I was like 10 years old. Um, <laughs> Which is crazy young, uh, but it's uh, especially when, you know, the first, for probably the first year, I just read kind of Harlequin and Mills and Boons kind of stuff, um, which was pretty harmless. You know, the, the most titillating thing was, you know, some heavy petting and deep kissing. But um, by the time I was 11, you know, like within a year or so, I, I found my first historical, which is ironically, and it didn't, it didn't even occur to me, but it was 
it was medieval. I mean, very late medieval. We'd call it probably Elizabethan, I think is what it was. Um, Cause I think it was Henry the eighth set in the Henry the eighth's court. And, um, and it was, uh, it concerned uh, a marcher lordship as well. So I weird that I, you know, gravitated back to that, but that was incredibly titillating. It was just all the sex all the time. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, this is the eighties. It was one of those real torrid epic ones. Then I hear I was, you know, 10, 11 years old reading it, but so I, I really gravitated toward historical from that point on. And I read very heavily um, romance from the ages of about 10 to I'd say 14 or 15 is kind of when I started to, to fall off of it. And it was, you know, the 80s and 90s. And while I did read some contemporaries, like I said, Harlequins and stuff, um, they always felt so much to me, the contemporaries, like at that time, like the same book over and over again. And they were really packaged that way. They were so incredibly similar. So the historicals felt a little bit that way, but there was so much more drama and so much more variety just in terms of settings and characters and conflicts and events. It was just this whole smorgasbord. Um, and then on top of it, you know, reading historicals always made me feel like smart, you know, like, oh, well, I know who the King of England was at whatever year. Um, <laughs> so, um, when it came to writing, I, I mean, I really just gravitated toward what I knew. Um, so my first was a late Regency and that, you know, 1820. And that was because, you know, I knew that specific world that that social culture was the best place to tell the story that I wanted to tell. Um, and the second book was a medieval because I knew I wanted to write. Well, first of all, I knew I wanted to write about a girl dressed as a boy, which is just one of my all time favorite things. Um, and I also knew that I wanted her to have a sword and not just like a wimpy little, you know, fencing foil either. I wanted her to have like a smite my enemies kind of sword. <laughs> I, it was very, very clear in my mind that that's what I wanted. So um, I knew it had to be medieval. Um, but, you know, as you noted, medieval is very, very long. A lot of people, um, you know, don't really consider that. They, they fail to realize that the medieval period is, you know, like a thousand years long. Mm. Um, meanwhile, the Regency is technically only, I think, nine years. Of course, in the genre, we stretch that to more like 20 years. But um, even still, medieval history is just huge in comparison. And yeah. there are so many pockets of history inside of it that you can choose from and events and developments. Um, so that's, that's really, like I said, I gravitated toward what I knew. And, and unfortunately, I think it's unfortunate anyway, my imagination was really confined to the British Isles because that's the other tradition in the genre and what I was exposed to. And, and it's such a shame now because I see so many cool places now in the medieval world that, that you can write in. Like, I think all the time about writing in Moorish Spain and some of the sub-Saharan African kingdoms and city-states or even along the Silk Road. But, you know, I, I didn't know any of that. I wasn't exposed to any of it. Um, so I, I had written a, read a bunch of uh, historical fiction around medieval Wales. Um, and that's kind of, I kind of blindly went with that. So I will say that, you know, back when I was reading in the genre really heavily in the 80s and 90s, it was really common for an author to bounce around time periods. Most authors then had, you know, they had their handful of Regencies, some Georgian, some medieval, maybe an American book or two, a pirate. They had a whole portfolio. They might even throw in a couple of contemporaries. They had this whole range. 
Um, but that's there's much less of that now. The genre's really narrowed and um, people really stay focused on, you know, their own time period. But I didn't know that when I decided to write. So I was probably um, indirectly influenced by some ignorance of the market, <laughs> which freed me up to write time periods that interested me. And those were the ones that I had read in historical romance when I was young. Probably commercially speaking, that was very good for you because if you tried to write about Morris Spain as a beginning writer, you probably would have found it quite hard to get people to even look at the books. It's sad, isn't it? Because I find it a bit frustrating, the domination of Regency. I mean, I love it. But as you say, I mean, I look at, as a New Zealander, I look at American history. I'm actually writing books set in California sort of 20 years after the gold rush. To me, that seems one of the most fascinating periods. And it's not Western, I say defensively. You know, they tend to get shoved into the Western uh, thing. But there's so much possibility for um, nuance in American history that isn't yet being worked with, isn't there? There really is. Um, I mean, and I wouldn't say it's not being uh, explored at all. There are authors doing it. It's just that it's, it's um, you know, we're kind of talking about the genre as a, as a whole, uh, you know, very broadly. There are authors, you know, Beverly Jenkins immediately comes to mind. Yeah. Alyssa Cole and her um, Civil War period stuff comes to mind as well. There are authors who have done it and who are still doing it. It's just unfortunately... There are really, really few. I do think it's changing a little bit now. Um, and part of that is because, you know, the genre has narrowed down to like, you know, only Regency and the big publishers, that's that's really what they focus on. It's the same thing, um, I think, with almost any kind of entertainment or any kind of, I guess, capitalism in general, right? Like, well, that's what people want, so that's what we offer, but they can't want what you don't offer. Um, and while, you know, I, I know one reason that I didn't even bother when I did start to publish in 2015, I, I didn't even bother querying at that point. I didn't look at for agents or traditional publishers at all because um, I knew that they weren't interested in medievals. They, they just aren't. And if they are, they want it to be very different than what I write. They want it to be that whole, you know, savage conqueror thing um, or a Highlander or something. Um, and I, or a Viking, and um, it's very taming the savage, uh, and and that's not at all what I write, and um, so I didn't even bother because there's not, they don't see a market for it. But here's the very very interesting thing: while my regencies have been very successful, my medievals have been far 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 more successful, and absolutely nobody in the industry would have said that that was possible. Um, but I do think that the readership is very hungry for stuff. I mean, I feel like they're like me. I am so sick of ballrooms. I am sick of poofy dresses and domineering dukes and, you know, virginal girls. I just, I'm, I'm bored out of my mind. <laughs> and, you know, even though you can tweak it and, you know, even really wonderful authors can, can give us new perspectives and new things. It's again, you know, it's such a tiny period of time and there's all of the globe and all of history to go into. And I do think people are a little bit more willing. Now I hear it all the time from people that, you know, they're, they, that mine is the first medieval that they've ever picked up or that they don't read medievals, but they like mine. Um, and because mine are a little bit different and they're willing um, to kind of give it a shot because they've heard that it's different. Um, and I do think that, that that's more and more the case. We, as a genre, I feel like historicals really 
narrowed itself and and the audience has contracted accordingly. And there's no reason that we can't open that back up. And I do think it's happening very gradually, but um, it does require taking a risk. Sure. And it's interesting. I mean, I loved a review that is on the Goodreads site of of one of your Welsh Blades books. It says she writes so authentically in ways that are true to the setting, but also painfully modern. And I wonder if that is part of the attraction of your work, that you are very honest about the historical um, foibles. And you you sort of have a modern sensibility. You explain to the reader, um, well, I, I was reading House of Cads, and I thought it was amusing the way you explained through American eyes all the different bits of the English aristocracy and where a baronet sits and when an earl sits and when a marquis. And I thought, look, most readers wouldn't have a clue about that. And it's really quite interesting to see that through American eyes and not just assume that we all accept that world as it's presented. Yeah. And I mean, um, I mean, it's, it's wonderful that if that's, you know, what people think that it's true to the setting and, um, but also feels modern. I, I will say that one of the things that I love about historical, and I mean, there's always this kind of, um, gonna, I'm going to go ahead and call it a, a friendly debate. I don't know how friendly it is sometimes among readers and reviewers and writers about historical that, um, you know, the the wallpaper ones, as we call them, the wallpaper historicals where, you know, it's modern people just dressed up in fun clothes. And, you know, that's the only reason that we said it historically so that we can have the pretty dresses. Um there's those and then there's the ones that are more authentic. Um, and I mean, I guess I would say that um, there, there, isn't, there isn't any such thing as authentic. I, I've kind of adopted a view that there's no such thing as historically accurate. Um, there's some historically inaccurate stuff, sure. But um, we're all just portraying our own perceptions of, of what that was like. Um, I do think that... Um, there's the thing that attracts me to it is is I, I could never write something of, of you know what's described as a wallpaper historical um, because it doesn't appeal to me. To me, the whole appeal of putting something in a historical setting is to take human beings who are the same now as they were a thousand years ago. I mean, we go through the same stuff. The human experience is the same, um, and to put it in a place where the rules are different. Um, so, you know, humans have always had trust issues and they've always been, you know, torn by divided loyalties and mistreated or empowered and impoverished. And I mean, just everything in a human experience. Um, so I don't think that what my characters go through is bound by time. Um, you know, women have been oppressed since, you know, since we entered into an agriculture-based society, which is a long time. So they've always had to deal with relative powerlessness and, you know, pregnancy and sexual predators and just basically living in a world built and run by men. Um, so it might be 700 years along, but as people, we're not different at all. And um, only our situation is different. The choices that are open to us, the things that our society will and will not accept, what they'll impose on us. So I feel like so much of what feels familiar in my writing, no matter if I'm writing medieval or if I'm writing, you know, 19th century, um, it feels familiar because it is familiar. We still struggle with the same stuff. Um, we just do it in different clothes and with 
penicillin and better indoor plumbing. I mean, it's, um, so I think that, yeah, if I convey the setting with adequate richness and detail and I convey people as real people with normal problems and joys and sorrows, then yeah, it should feel both modern and true to the setting. Those are not at all conflicting things in my opinion. But that's fabulous and it feeds very nicely into another area that you've written on eloquently and that is the relevance of things like the Me Too movement and white nationalism to romance writing in general and you've you've addressed that head on with a couple of papers that you've written analysing the way that books treat those issues or romance books in the past have treated those issues and perhaps ways that we ought to start to change the way that we do regard them. Talk a little bit about that for us, will you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, I, I kind of don't know where to start. It's such a big topic. It is and for anybody topic, who, yeah. Yeah, and for anybody who, um, I mean, just as a kind of a brief synopsis as into how I got into it was um, I uh, very unexpectedly, I, I submitted a proposal to um, an academic conference. It was an academic conference about... Um, and I'm not an academic at all. I need to make that incredibly clear. I just had a bee in my bonnet. Um, and it was, I think, November of 2017 um, when I saw this call for, for proposals, call for paper go across. And, you know, they very obviously also wanted to hear from romance authors and readers and not just scholars. Um, at, at, and so I submitted this proposal, never thinking that they would choose it, but they did. And so here I had this huge topic of, um, you know, white supremacist narratives and how historical fiction perpetuates it. Um, really, any kind of history-based fiction and the kind of, um, you know, mythology that it perpetuates and harmful mythologies that it per perpetuates. And it's a huge topic. And... I was incredibly frustrated to find out that my presentation could only be 15 minutes. It turned out to be a blessing though, because it really forced me to like condense it all because it is a huge topic. So, um, I mean, I can say that, you know, I, I say this very frequently, there's very, there's nothing new in kind of what I've said about it. Um, and anybody who's interested that the academic uh, presentation is available on my site. Um, on the homepage, if you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see a, a link to it. Um, I also uh, developed that and, and um, that was for an academic audience. And then I, you know, turned it into an article for um, the RWA. And I believe it's going to be printed um, in uh, the New Zealand Romance Writers Magazine as well. Um, so uh, that's also available on my site and that's more for an audience of writers. But, um, you know, basically the idea is, um, not really sure like how to synthesize it, but you sort of described it as 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 that we've been drinking from a poisoned well. I thought that was an amazing way to describe it. The critique of white mythos found in romantic of historical romance is like drinking from a poisoned well. That was a pretty striking image. Well, yeah, and that's the thing is that you know. The reason that it all came about was because, you know, uh, you might be familiar in, in America in the summer of uh, 2017, uh, we had a, a really violent white nationalist uh, rally in Charlotte, um, Charlottesville. And uh, it was violent and a, and a young woman died. And um, it was truly appalling sitting here on my couch, watching it on the news unfold. Um, and 
And I think it was just a really a big wake up call for a lot of people to realize that not only have these forces always been alive in our society, but there's quite the resurgence of it. And it's it's not something to just sort of joke about and think, oh, there's some weird nut- nuttos out in the in the woods with guns. I mean, they're they're not. They're your neighbors. Um, so, you know, that was kind of the beginning, because at the same time I was realizing I kept seeing it showing up in um discussions that medievalists were having, medieval historians, because so many um, white supremacists have really claimed um, the medieval history as their own. They, they consider Europe to be, you know, the, you know, the white homeland. There were no, there were, there was nobody who wasn't white and Christian in Europe until things got corrupted. And they have this very strange mythology that they've built up. Um, And so I naturally thought to myself, you know, what, what can I do or what's my part in it? How have I helped to perpetuate this idea? Um, and so, you know, this is my little corner is, is historical romance. And, um, when you look at the shelves and you see that it is populated, it's predominantly a bunch of, you know, rich, white, aristocratic Christians in England. Um, and it's written a lot of it. I mean, I think a majority of it is written and read, by Americans and Americans come from a hugely diverse background, you know, and yet somehow that's the only history that all of us go to is this tiny slice of life in England. Um, so I started to question it. And when you, when you do that is, um, you know, what you realize is that, I mean, look, this is kind of what I say. It's this plague of Dukes and Earls, right? I, and, and just imagine if we went forward 200 years into the future and we saw historical romance shelves were 80% Silicon Valley tech bros as the heroes, right? That's just weird. First of all, that's just baseline weird, okay? Um, To essentially fetishize one specific kind of person to that extent. But the other thing is that it, it also tells us what we value and what we think is desirable, right? And the flip side declaring who is desirable is that we're also tacitly declaring who is not desirable. Mm. And, and then you start, then you start to see what's really going on. Historical romances are not the only subgenre, by the way, where this is a problem, but to me, it's the one that has a really obvious immediate consequence in the real world, because history is a collection of stories. And I know that we like to think of it as facts, you know, but it always, like I said, it comes down to someone's version of history. And even the most respected, brilliant historians are only telling history as they have interpreted it, right? Not as it definitely was. So when you look not just at the things that romance has chosen to enshrine, the the rich, white, titled, straight Christians, right? That's who romance largely cares about. But when you look beyond that to the interpretation of history, this communal fantasy world, as I call it, um, it's really appalling. It doesn't just leave out major things that were really happening in the world and that have affected people's lives. It, it would have affected those characters' lives. It leaves that out totally, but also it distorts history. And again, we're talking about the whole here, not any one individual book, but it manages to distort history in a way that is pers- purposely And we don't realize it, but it is a way that is purposely designed to justify a system of white supremacy. And I realize that 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 sounds really extreme to anyone who's never looked at it that way before, but there's no way that I can call it just, you know, garden variety racism or bigotry. It 
when you look at it and you analyze it, it demonstrably upholds tenets of the white supremacist movement. And it echoes many of the exact talking points that white nationalists, you know, adhere to in everywhere that they speak. It just does. Um, and in the majority of these books, because there are some exceptions, like I said, I'm talking about the standard rule. And the standard rule, you know, is that black people basically don't exist in Europe before the 20th century. And uh, any person or culture that is not white or Christian is depicted as incredibly exotic or dangerous or perverted, you know, the foreign other, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the aristocracy was a noble institution, and these were people with fine manners and elegance, and they never mention that much of their wealth came from slave labor and colonialist exploitation and outright genocide. I mean, the list goes on and on. That And, and when you look at it, you realize we're perpetuating white supremacist ideology with these stories. And like I said, that that doesn't, it's it's so important to emphasize that that it doesn't make you a white supremacist if you like those stories. It doesn't make you one even if you write them or enjoy them, none of that. Um, but what I'm saying is that there's no reason that we can't try to reshape our fantasy world to make it less you know, approved by the KKK, I guess is my point. Yeah. We, of course, in New Zealand have, are having this heart-searching discussion because of the terrible events in Christchurch two weeks ago, which I'm sure have reached, um, they did reach the international world. And we wouldn't have ever thought that we would have had something like that happening in our little quiet corner of the world. So no one can escape it. Right, yeah, and I, I have to say this, there's just been such an out. I hope every. I hope you there in New Zealand know that the, that we have thought of you so much and so constantly. You know, I say it so frequently that I I live in a country where unfortunately events like that are have become kind of commonplace, um, and so you get to a point where you know it's. I don't want to say it's normalized, but you you do get to a point where you're like, well, you know, there's another day and what can I do about it? Mm. Um, but seeing it happen in New Zealand, I think hit us as well. And I, and I hope, I hope you all know how much we're thinking of you and how much, you know, you have our sympathy and our support. And all I can say is it's, it's wonderful that you're having the discussion because, um, you know, stuff like this, and this is, this is kind of one of the hard things I think to accept is that, um, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't built in a day and it's not going to come down in a day. Mm. It, um, it's, it's something that, you know, if it's going to change, you know, that's one reason that I kind of focus on, um, this kind of broader thing. I don't know that I'm ever going to see in my lifetime, um, a massive change in, um, historical fiction and the stories that we tell that I would like to see. And I don't know if, even if I do, if that change is going to trickle down to people's perception of, of human history um, and change, you know, kind of sh shore us up against the white supremacist ideology. But I do know that, you know, um, it's foundational. And, and if you want to make a lasting change, it has to be foundational. And that's going to take generations. And the sooner you start the work on it, the sooner you start having the discussions and you start analyzing the things that contribute to it, 
um, you know, that much, that's that much further ahead that you're going to get. Elizabeth, this is a really great conversation. I'll just mention to listeners that we will put the links for those papers in the show notes for this episode. So anyone who wants to look into it further and see your analysis in more detail will be able to click straight through to it. That is fabulous. Look, just perhaps moving on in your career, is there one thing you've done more than any other that you would consider the secret of your success? Well, um, gosh. (laughs) I know it's a change of pace, but we're running out of time. (laughs) Let's see. I guess it depends on how you define success. So for me, what what I've always wanted um, is to protect my creative impulse. Like I said, I lost that for a good amount of time. So um, it was suffocated for so long that, you know, I really thought it was dead. So now I, I prioritize that over everything. And as long as I'm doing that, as long as I'm preserving that, um, that will to write that, that impulse to create, um, then I'm succeeding by my own definition, right? I've seen so much burnout and I've seen so many people just get fed up and walk away. And I don't, I don't want that to happen to me. Um, and so, so far the secret to that has been for me is not to listen to, I mean, I guess I'd say not listen to conventional wisdom because conventional wisdom would tell me that, you know, I need to put more of myself into marketing and promo and, I need to write different kinds of stories that appeal to more people, or I need to write, I need to outline a five book series and write it according to this timed publishing plan. And my covers should look much different and blah, blah, blah. There's there's so much out there that you're supposed to do a certain way. But I have ignored that all pretty much from the very beginning. Um, I just do what makes sense to me and what I want to do, what appeals to me at the time. Um, And that's meant that financially, I'm only minimally successful. Um, But in terms of what I want for my creative self and for my life, I am wildly successful. Um, So I'd say, you know, the secret to it is that you just have to block out the voices that tell you you should want something else. Um, Because there's always there's always that force out there. And if you if you block it out, then you're going to you're going to get what you want if you stay true to what you want. That's really the only secret I have for you. That's so refreshing to hear because there is a huge amount of stuff out there telling you what what you should do if you want to be, quote, successful. So that's wonderful. Look, the series is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and it's partly predicated around the idea that people are looking to read series and to and to be binge readers in the similar way that they are binge watchers on TV. What is your favorite binge reading material? There, have you got any recommendations? Um, well, you know, I will say that, um, I mean, I tend to binge on more like topic wise. So right now I'm reading a book on the Mitford sisters and I get the feeling that I'm probably going to read like five more books before about them and buy them before I've exhausted the topic. But, um, uh, one of them, so is that a biography? Um, it's, uh, it is a, a biography of, of the sisters. So, um, it's very, it's so far, it's fantastic. I wish I could remember the author, but the Midford sisters themselves wrote novels about their family, their own biographies. So there's all these different perspectives you can get. <laughs> so it, it's a little obsessive. Um, and I can tell that I'm probably going to, um, 
get into that. But I will say also one of the best binge reads in recent memory a few years ago was um, Discovering Tana French, um, oh. her Dublin Murder yes, Squad. Yes, It's I I can't recommend it enough because it's so rare to find books that are that addictive and that like page turner compelling, right? While at the same time being so gorgeously written. So like Faithful Place, In the Woods, The Likeness, they're just so good. And I'm, I'm planning a reread soon. I have a lot of like staying up late nights reading. <laughs> um, I also have to recommend um, for anybody who likes historical fiction, uh, Sharon K. Penman. Um, she, her Welsh Princes trilogy, um, there are three of them. And it's, uh, the first one is called uh, Here Be Dragons. And the second is uh, Falls to the Shadow. Third is called The Reckoning. Um, and that trilogy is what made me set my medievals during that, you know, that particular period and around the whole movement for, you know, Welsh independence. And they are, this is the best thing for binge readers is that they are huge books. I mean, just a pile, like a thousands of pages altogether. <laughs> so they will keep you sustained if you have like a, you know, um, her other novels are great too. You just get completely lost in the history. So yeah. the other thing too is, um, N.K. Jemisin, her Broken Earth trilogy, even if you're not a fantasy, big fantasy reader, I'm not. I read the first and I loved it. And I promised myself that I would read the next two once I got my own book finished. And I, and I finished that book and it's published just a couple weeks ago. So I can't wait to dive back in that into that one. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's wonderful. One of the writers that I have had on the podcast recently is Jessica Fellows, who's the niece of Julian Fellows, who did Downton Abbey. Oh. And she started a murder mystery series around the Mitford sisters. Each book is focused on one of the sisters. You might be interested in taking a look at Oh, those. my gosh. You've just determined my reading for the next month. <laughs> 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 now, look, we are running out of time. So circling around, looking at your career and then back to where you are today, at this stage, is there, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything you'd do differently? Um, I mean, it, it's going to sound strange, but nothing. It's, it's, it's tempting to say that I'd get that decade of non-writing back, you know, that I'd go back yeah. and just not give up for all those years. Mm. Um, because I do have a tendency to think of them sometimes as wasted years. But honestly, I really wouldn't ever do that because experiencing that really made me realize what I want from my writing and from publishing. You know, it got my priorities straight and it really put me in a very good and mentally healthy place for a writer to be in that most writers don't get to be in when they decide to go into it. So, um, and I wouldn't have that if I, if I didn't have those years of really making, of really giving me that perspective. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't change anything, you know, except maybe a couple of typos that got printed. I'm still haunted by a couple of them. Um, so yeah, if you gave me a time machine, I'd, I'd, I'd go back and change those, but pretty much nothing else. That's fantastic. Now, what is next for Elizabeth the writer? Are you a big goal setter? And um, what have you got on your plate for the next year? Well, I'm not a big goal setter, actually. I'm pretty loose with myself. Like I said, I, I just want to keep pre creating and enjoy the process. Um, and, and that's hard to do when you pressure yourself yeah. um, or yourself. So I'm pretty lenient with myself. I, I just finished a book um, and I'm not working on another one yet. Um, 
I'm just now starting to let go of that story. It takes me a while. I always say they're like relationships, you know, and I, I just broke up. It's an amicable breakup and I'm still singing, you know, Dolly Parton, I will always love you to it in my sleep. So <laughs> what's the name of that, get that book? That's the set book. It's uh, Desire Lines is my most recent right. medieval. Yes, yep. Um, and, um, so yeah, I just finished it and I'm, I'm not working on another one yet. So I don't really know what's next. It's always whichever story shows up and starts nagging at me to write it. You know, that's what I sit down to write. I never push it. So until it announces itself, I just sit around eating popcorn for another month or another year, I guess. I, um, after, after a few months, I might start to get worried. And if something doesn't show up, um, but I don't have like a publishing goal for myself. My, my, uh, my goal is always just to keep things in a state to where I can allow stories to stroll in and demand to be written. It's fantastic. Now, where can readers find you online? Are you online and where can they interact with you? I am online. You can find um, on my website, which is elizabethkingstonbooks.com, um, which is all one word, Elizabeth Kingston Books. Um, and, you know, you can, readers can send me messages there, find my email and find all my social media links. I have a Facebook page that I keep up to date and I check it every day, but mostly I'm most active on Twitter. Um, and of course I love to hear from readers. I think all authors, right, love to hear from, from a reader when they like their work. I mean, maybe if you don't like it, you don't have to tell me that, but you can still say hi. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's gorgeous. We'll put all of those links in as well so that it's easy for people to make contact. Look, it's been fabulous talking to you. I really do admire both. I think your attitude towards the creative process, I love it because there is so much pressure on writers these days to just be production machines. And I, and I do understand what you're saying about the burnout aspect. So I think it's wonderful the way that you're protective of your creative process. And also this analysis you've presented, which I do hope gets wide um, dispersion and discussion in the romance community. It's really great. Well, thank you so much. And I'm, uh, I'm always happy with other writers. It's all kind of my soapbox to get on about, you know, uh, create, you know, we're in this because we're creative people and we love to write. So you need to preserve that before everything else. Um, I've known too many writers, so I'm always here to, uh, to shout about that. And I am always here to shout about, I say it all the time, that intersection between historical fiction, historical romance specifically, and, and white supremacist ideology. I am, I'm not shutting up about it anytime soon. And, um, and I'm not the only one, and I'm very glad that there are people who are open and willing to to listen and reconsider without feeling threatened or attacked by it, um, and to approach it with intellectual honesty and honest and just you know an open heart. It's it's a difficult topic, but we're all in this together. I feel like that's wonderful, Elizabeth. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. 
Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.